I forgot all about our epic intro. I was just going to start talking. Sorry about that, guys. Hey, in honor of the Garlic Festival, I hope you all noticed that our coffee and donuts today all have fresh garlic sprinkled throughout. That's just for you guys to enjoy the spirit of this weekend here in Gilroy. Hey, welcome. It's so good to see all of you guys today. As Janine said, we are finishing up our series on Moses, and I hope you guys have been enjoying this. I know we have been enjoying teaching through these stories and looking at really incredibly well-known Bible stories and trying to see them in the lens of the narrative where they belong and not just as, you know, parts of movies and cartoons and pop culture the way many of us typically think of them. And so today, we're going to conclude the series by kind of jumping past almost or skimming over hundreds of pages of Bible and decades of history to get to the end of Moses' life and look at the particular way that his story concludes and what it has to say about us. Before we do that, I want to really briefly just kind of retrace our steps from where we've been so far. And if you missed a few of the weeks during this series or if you're brand new here, I want to really encourage you. We have all of our message content on our website, not only as audio, but also as video. So if there are gaps in my retelling of this, because I'm trying to cover multiple chap- uh, or, uh, books of the Bible in like five minutes right now, go back and check those out. Um, we're really excited to be able to offer those resources to you guys, and we hope you use them. The story started with a baby being born named Moses, who was doomed to die from birth because he's born at a time when the Pharaoh of Egypt, who had enslaved the people of Israel, had commanded that every baby boy born to Israelites should be thrown into the Nile. Moses' life is miraculously preserved when his mother places him in um, what your English translation says is a basket, but what the Hebrew Bible says is an ark, incredibly powerful word for the stories that have come before Exodus. And so he's preserved in this ark, grows up in the house of Pharaoh himself, and ends up later, after 40 years, fleeing Egypt and living as a shepherd in the land of Midian. While he's shepherding in Midian, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of of Moses' forefathers, reveals himself to Moses in a burning bush. And he tells Moses that he's going to send him back to Egypt to execute judgments on the gods of Egypt and rescue Israel from slavery. While he's there, God says something of particular importance for where we're going today and something that I think is meant to be kind of hanging over the whole story after this. Um, It says, then Yahweh, and, and just as a quick side note, We've talked about this a lot in this series, but when you see the word Lord in the Old Testament and it's written in all capital letters, that's not translating the word Lord, the title. It's actually translating the personal name of God in the Old Testament, which is Yahweh. It's the name that's revealed during this burning bush story. So it says, Then Yahweh said to Moses, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. God tells Moses, I have heard the cry of my enslaved people, and I'm going to rescue them. But I'm not just going to get them out of Egypt and say, see you later. I'm going to bring them into the land that I promised to my servant Abraham for his offspring the land that I told Abraham I would put the nation that I give him from his own offspring. And so because that's the land that God promised to Abraham, we call it the what? The promised land. That's a really easy one, but I understand we got some more. Thank you. I appreciate it, Scott, for uh, helping me out there. (laughs) The promised land. 
That's a word that, or a term rather, that is just full of, of meaning all throughout the Old Testament. It's the land of Israel, the land that God said to Abraham he would give to his offspring. And for the rest of this story, it's the expected final destination of Israel after everything they go through. God is going to rescue them. He's going to take them out of, of, of Egypt and bring them to that land. But tragically, if you're familiar with the life of Moses, you may already know this, Moses himself will never stand in that land before he dies. Moses goes back to Egypt, and God enacts those judgments against the gods of Egypt in the form of these ten plagues that we spent a lot of time talking about. And we talked about how each of them is meant to kind of subvert and dethrone one of the gods that was worshipped in Egypt. And so Yahweh proves his supremacy over the gods of Egypt and rescues his people out of there. He takes them to the Red Sea. Pharaoh changes his mind one more time and sends an army after them. And right when it looks like they're trapped between the ocean and Pharaoh's army, God miraculously divides the sea and the Israelites walk through on dry land. God brings the sea back over the top of the Egyptians and and kind of finishes his judgment of that nation in that moment. He brings them to Sinai, the mountain. Moses goes up and he receives the law. Now Moses receiving the law, starting with the Ten Commandments and then the rest of the law, carries on past the end of the book of Exodus and on into and through the entire book of Leviticus. Leviticus is a book that, uh, well, first of all, it's a book that Isaac keeps promising we're going to preach all the way through here at some point. And so hold him to that because we talk about it regularly. He's like, let's do it. I'm like, let's do it right now. Come on, let's do it. So at some point, we'll preach through this entire book. You know, it's a book that if you've done a reading plan through the whole Bible, you have probably at some point been like, when does this book end? because it's incredibly detailed and incredibly specific. But, but what you need to know is it is that way for a reason. God has chosen to dwell with his people, even in the midst of their sinfulness and rebellion. And so for a good and holy God to dwell among sinful, rebellious people means that there are rules that need to be observed. There is care that needs to be taken in order to keep that balance so that God can dwell among his people. So that's the entire book of Leviticus. When Leviticus ends, we get to a book that in English and Greek is called Numbers. It's called Numbers because the first 10 or 12 chapters are concerned with the counting of all the different families and people in Israel. It's another part of the Bible that's difficult to read. Um, But unfortunately, what the the name Numbers conceals about the book is that that's only the very first part. There's a lot more that happens after that. And while they're counting all those people, something really exciting is happening that's easy to miss. What's happening is the people of Israel are rising up triumphantly and setting out from Sinai where they received the law to go to the promised land. So the book starts with this expectation that that promise that God made all the way back in Exodus 3 is about to come true. We got the law, we're, we're good to go. We had that whole golden calf thing, but that's, we, we've worked past that, got the tabernacle, and we're gonna go into the promised land. But here's the thing. The Hebrew Bible doesn't call that book Numbers. The Hebrew Bible has always called the fourth book of the Pentateuch, which is what you call the first five books of the Bible. The fourth book has always been called In the Wilderness. And the reason it's called In the Wilderness is because Israel, at this point, isn't going to make it into the Promised Land. Despite that great expectation that starts all the way back in Exodus 3, when Israel gets to the borders of the Promised Land, they send spies in, 12 of them, one for each tribe, and the spies come back out, and only two of them, named Joshua and Caleb, give a positive report. They say, hey, 
The place is awesome. There's amazing food there. There are some other people there, but God is going to deliver us. God is able to, to take the land for us. The other 10 come back and say, you guys have no idea what's going on in there. There are giants in there. It's terrifying. We're going to die. We're like, they say, <laughs> I love this, we're like grasshoppers compared to them, which has to be an exaggeration. And that's how people describe how they feel when they're talking to me. But I mean, at the same time, God has told them, this God who has demonstrated over and over that he can deliver them, he's told them, I'm going to give you this land. But all the people listen to the bad report of the 10 spies, and they say, we don't even want to go in there. And this is kind of like the final straw for, of Israel's disobedience. And God says, I've shown my faithfulness to you over and over again, and you have just been persistently rebelling against me. So what's going to happen is I'm going to take you out into the wilderness for 40 years. And this entire generation of adults that has been so rebellious over and over again, all of you are going to die in the wilderness. And it will be your children who you raise up in the wilderness. Your children will be the ones who go in and claim the land. And so the only two people from this generation of Israel that go into the promised land are Joshua and Caleb. And for different reasons that we'll get to in a little bit, Moses himself isn't going to get into the promised land, even after the 40 years. So Moses leads the people of Israel through the wilderness for 40 years. And before we talk about how that story ends, because this whole series has been focused on Moses, and particularly on Moses through the story of, of the Exodus, we got to just pause for a few minutes and consider the uniqueness of this character. Moses is, I mean, we all typically, if you grew up, especially in the church, but even just in, in regular Western culture, um, you think of Moses as an epic character. I mean, it's Charlton Heston, right? With like the best beard ever. He has like a, doesn't he have like a stick fight with Pharaoh at some point? Is that in, is that in the Ten Commandments? Where's Caroline Brooks? There's, right, they, have a, they have a fight, right? Oh, you watch the Ten Commandments, come on. The person we really need is Suzanne Lopez because she loves this movie. Moses, we think of him as being this epic character, but honestly, even with just looking at the high points of the story, there are things in this story that reveal Moses as a character who is truly unique among the prophets. All the prophets, their role is to represent God to the people, and that's what Moses does. But Moses represents God at a level of intimacy that is unparalleled by any other prophet in the entire Old Testament. God sends him into Egypt, and he's doing the things that you expect a prophet to do. God says, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, and then Moses is kind of the one who goes and enacts that. But at some points, the, the kind of fusion between what God is doing and what Moses is doing is so close that it's like, it's, you're like, whoa, I can't even believe I'm seeing this, and it's easy to miss. Here's an example. This is my favorite example of this. When they're about to cross the Red Sea, again, Pharaoh's army is coming behind Israel, and they're looking at the raging sea. And if you're an ancient Near Eastern person, the sea means chaos, terror, death. You don't want anything to do with it. And so they complain to Moses, and Moses complains to God. And God says, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward, lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea, and divide it. A few verses later, it says Moses does that, using the same phrase. He stretched out his hand. There's actually two other times in this narrative that it says the exact same thing. Because when they bring the sea back down onto Pharaoh's army, same thing. God says, stretch out your hand. And the author says, Moses stretches out his hand. Four times. The author's showing you who stretched out his hand? Moses. It's Moses who stretched his hand out. 
After they cross the sea, the people of Israel write a song about what just happened, praising God. And here's how they describe what happened. They say, your right hand, O Yahweh, glorious in power, your right hand, O Yahweh, shatters the enemy. And then if that wasn't clear enough, six verses later, they say, you, God, stretched out your right hand and earth swallowed them. What they just saw was Moses with his hand stretched out over the sea. And they understand that Moses' representation of God is so close that they can say with confidence, God, you stretched out your hand and the sea parted. It's whoa. It doesn't mean that Moses is God, not even close. So don't hear me saying that. No, and nobody interpreted it that way in the ancient world either. But it shows a level of representation that is unbelievably close. Here's another example. Moses, when he receives the law on Sinai, he comes down and his face is shining. He doesn't know it, which is kind of funny. He doesn't realize that his face is giving off this incredible shining from having been talking to Yahweh himself. But when he gets down the mountain, Aaron and all the people are terrified of him. They won't even talk to him. So he has to put a veil over his face. And it says that from that point on, anytime he goes to the tent of meeting and talks to Yahweh, he has to wear the veil afterwards for a while because that shining in his face comes back. It actually says, this is the exact wording, it's incredible, that when Moses goes to the tent of meeting, he speaks to Yahweh face to face as with a friend. That's the kind of intimacy that the writer of this book is showing you. Moses is so connected with God that when he speaks to him, it's face to face. And when he comes out, he has to put a veil over his head. That's already crazy, but think about this. What else at this point in the story has a veil? Any Old Testament fans? The tabernacle. To separate the Holy of Holies from the rest of the tabernacle. The Holy of Holies is this place in the dead center of the tabernacle, the tent where God dwells among his people Israel. We've talked about this before. The Jewish people had the same understanding that we do, that God is everywhere, that God is omnipresent. But they also said that he chose to dwell, and this is how the Bible explains it, in the tabernacle in a uniquely immediate way. His holiness, his presence is there, and it's so powerful that there needs to be a veil to separate it from the people. So powerful, so dangerous, that only one person goes behind that veil once per year, and it's the high priest on the Day of Atonement. And he does all these special washings, puts on special clothes, and goes back there, wearing an outfit that includes bells on the jacket so that the people outside can hear if he's still alive while he's in there. That's how intense the thing behind the veil is. Moses speaks to God so intimately that he needs a veil over his face afterwards. The presence of God is so heavy on him after these meetings. It's hard to imagine something like that. And you don't see anything like that for the rest of the Old Testament. One of the other ways that you kind of get um, a clear picture of, of God vindicating and demonstrating his special relationship with Moses is all the times throughout the books of Leviticus and Numbers and Exodus that people are trying to challenge Moses. It happens over and over again. Different people at different times will come and say like, hey, we want some of this authority. We can lead. Why, who put you in charge? At one point, um, it's actually Aaron's own two sons. At a different time, it's a group of 150 Levites and Reubenites who come together and basically say, hey, who made you the boss? We want our turn. Every time Moses is challenged in this way, God vindicates him dramatically. I'm talking fire coming out of the tabernacle and consuming people. At one point, the earth opens up and swallows people whole and then closes again. God is showing 
in no uncertain terms, this is the guy, only this guy. And everyone who challenges him learns that lesson in the incredibly hard way. Now, probably the most dramatic example of this is when Moses' own brothers, Aaron and Miriam, challenge him. And this is kind of a sad moment because Moses and Aaron have been like doing this thing together the whole time so far. But at one point in Numbers chapter 12, um, Aaron and Miriam come to Moses and what they say for us as modern people sounds really nice. They say, hey, God can speak through anybody. You know, like God speaks to us. He doesn't only speak to you. So why are you in charge? We need our turn. And Moses does what he always does because Moses is like, he's not like how I would be. When people challenge him, he doesn't go like, oh, you want to challenge me? Hey, God, show these guys what's up. Moses doesn't do that. When Moses gets challenged, his most common response is to fall on his face. And that's what he does here. He falls on his face. It's as if he's saying, like, don't do this. So when Aaron and Miriam challenge him, God's presence comes in a cloud on the tabernacle, and he calls Moses and Aaron and Miriam to him, and he says this. It's unbelievable. And he, this is God, said, hear my words, If there is a prophet among you, I, Yahweh, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth clearly and not in riddles, and he beholds the form of Yahweh. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? After this, Miriam actually gets leprosy, and the only reason she's healed seven days later is because Moses intercedes on her behalf. But it's hard to imagine stronger language than this to describe like the ultimate unparalleled Superman prophet. God says, yeah, there are other prophets and I reveal things to them in visions and in dreams and sometimes it's more like a riddle, but when it's Moses, we talk mouth to mouth. In Hebrew, that expression mouth to mouth is about relational intimacy. It means you're so close to the person that you're talking to that you can feel each other's breath on your face. Now, in the Western world, that sounds horrible and disgusting. And no matter how intimate any of you feel with me, please don't do this. But in the Hebrew mind, this is incredible relational intimacy. God says, Moses, with only Moses, when he talks to me, it's face to face, so close we can feel each other's breath, and he beholds the form of Yahweh. Honestly, I have no idea what that means, but it's something dramatic because Over and over again in the Old Testament, we're going to hear, man can't look on God and live, right? But Moses is being shown something of God that is incredibly unique. So he says, this is the only guy. This is the guy, Moses. At one point, they put out all the 12 staves of the different um, tribal leaders in Israel. And uh, God causes almond blossoms to sprout on Aaron's staff just to show this is the guy I pick. And they put that staff in the Holy of Holies in the Ark of the Covenant after that. And even after Moses is gone, his reputation as this like uniquely powerful prophet, this uniquely close to God prophet goes on forever. His five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, are also called the Torah in Hebrew teaching. And and man, if you're hundreds of years later, you could be a Jewish rabbi arguing with another Jewish rabbi and the way you win an argument about how the Israelites are supposed to live, how God's people are supposed to live, is you say, Moses said and then prove that Moses said what you think. I mean, Moses is the authority even long beyond his death. I mean, think about a person that you can say, Moses said and then just quote the Bible. That's what the Jewish people see him as. He he was, again, he's the, the superman 
of the Old Testament. And that's what makes it so painful and difficult to see what happens at the end of his life. Eight chapters after the run-in with Miriam and Aaron, something incredibly familiar happens if you've been following the story so far. If you remember a few weeks ago, we talked about a story in Exodus 16 where God, after the rescue in Egypt and before Sinai, he brings Israel out into the wilderness to teach them that they should depend on only him. And so they run out of water, they run out of food, and God provides for them. One of those stories takes place at a place called Marabah. It gets named that because of the situation there. And the people run out of water and complain to Moses. Decades later, two books of the Bible later, they're in the exact same place and the exact same thing happens. It says, now there was no water for the congregation and they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. And the people quarreled with Moses and said, would that we had perished when our brothers perished before Yahweh. That's like classic Israelite complaining during this time in history, by the way. It's always like, we should have just died back there rather than have to deal with this. Why have you brought the assembly of Yahweh into this wilderness that we should die here, both we and our cattle? And why have you made us come out, up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It's no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, and there's no water to drink. And if I'm Moses, I'm like, we brought you into the wilderness because you guys refused to go into the promised land where there are figs and vines and pomegranates and stuff. Like, don't you remember what just happened? But they complained to Moses, and it's the same exact complaint as the last time they were here. There's no water. You brought us out here just to kill us. What's going on? Then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. There's that same response. And the glory of Yahweh appeared to them, and Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. And Moses took the staff from before Yahweh as he commanded him. There's a few things that become different here. The first time this happened, Moses went to God and said the same thing. What, what should we do? And God said, go to the rock, bring just the elders of Israel and hit the rock and I'll pour forth water. This time he says, bring the entire congregation. I want all of Israel to see what happens. And he doesn't tell him to hit the rock. He tells him specifically to speak to the rock, tell the rock to give forth water. And then this happens. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels. Shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice, and water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank and their livestock. And Yahweh said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. Moses was told, bring the congregation, speak to the rock, and I'll bring forth water. He goes, and instead he hits the rock twice. And as punishment, God tells him, you're not going into the promised land now. And if you're honest, and you're like me, you're like, man, that seems incredibly harsh. I mean, I know he was disobedient. He got like a specific command, and he didn't do it. And like, you know, he probably deserves some kind of a slap on the wrist, but... He, He's barred from entering the promised land now, the thing that we've been hoping for since Exodus 3. And there are a few reasons why, it's not obvious to us when we read it, but there are a few things about what Moses did 
that make it much, much worse than it seems at first. The two that you hear most commonly, and there are truth to both of them, is, is one, that because Moses and Aaron are in leadership and everyone is looking to them as representatives of God, they're held to a much higher standard than everyone else. And so this act of direct disobedience in front of everyone is a very big deal because they are the representatives of God and the leaders of the people. It's definitely truth to that. The other thing that, that gets talked about that I think is, is also true is Moses, more than anyone, should know why God's commandments are so specific. We talked about how reading Leviticus is difficult because there's just like specific command after specific command after specific command, but they're specific for a reason. Like we talked about earlier, it's because God wants to dwell among an unrighteous, rebellious people. And for him to do that means you, would, you have to live in a certain way or else this is just not going to work. Moses and Aaron, more than anybody, should know that. And yet they disobey specific commandments. I think both of those things are true, but I actually think there's something else going on that has to do with the first story that makes this a particularly horrible thing that Moses has done. The first time they're at Marabah and they're out of water, God tells Moses this. He says, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. God tells Moses, I will stand on the rock and you strike the rock and I'll pour out water. Why does water come out of the rock? It's not because God like shows him, hey, don't hit any of these rocks, but this particular rock is a water rock. And if you hit that one, water will come out. That's not the point. Water comes out of the rock because God is on the rock. God is the source of water, not the rock. Moses knows that. He doesn't have to be told it again in the number story. He knows that water's coming from this rock because God is on it. Now follow the logic of what Moses does. God is on the rock. Moses has already been said to be multiple times somebody who speaks face to face to God as with a friend. And he's supposed to go to the rock that God is on and speak to it. And instead he takes the staff, the budded staff that has done all these miracles so far, and in anger, strikes the rock twice. He's hitting God. Now, at the very least, what Moses is doing is flagrant, deliberate disobedience in front of the entire congregation of Israel. That's the least, like the, the least bad it could be. The worst case scenario is it's an act of violence against Yahweh himself. And so the punishment that, no, you have failed to uphold me as holy, you have struck me before the entire congregation when I'm prepared to provide for you at a word. And as a result, he'll never go into the promised land. So Moses leads the people through the rest of the 40 years of wilderness wanderings. There are some incredible stories in there. It's really a very amazing and interesting book after you get past all of the counting. And when it ends, they arrive, Moses and the new generation of Israelites who are going to enter the promised land, they arrive at the entrance to the promised land again, and Moses gives a long speech. And that long speech is the book of Deuteronomy. It's Moses retelling the story so far and then restating the rest of the law. So that's what's recorded in the majority of the book. And then there's a, a postscript that's written by someone else because it's after Moses dies and a little intro. And in this book, right in the middle of it, Moses says something incredible. 
And like everything in these books where there's all of this kind of monotonous stuff that you're reading, um, it's really easy to miss this, but it's an incredible moment. Moses says, And Yahweh your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. He says, I'm going to die, but at some point, God is going to raise up a prophet like me. We just spent a lot of time talking about what a prophet like Moses would be like. This is not your everyday regular prophet. A prophet like Moses is something special. He says, when that happens, you'll listen to him. If you're just kind of reading this intuitively, you go, well, it's probably going to be the guy who succeeds Moses. It's probably going to be Joshua. Like, he needs to raise up a prophet like Moses so that everybody will listen and obey and be able to take the promised land. And Joshua does get raised up, and God does validate him as his servant, and he does some incredible things, but this isn't about Joshua. And the reason we know that is because this is how the book ends. These are the last verses of the Pentateuch, the books of Moses. After Moses dies, it says this, And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses whom Yahweh knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and the wonders that Yahweh sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of Israel. So whenever this book reaches its final form, the author can say with full authority, there's never been a prophet like Moses since. So Moses is taken up onto a high mountain outside of the promised land, and God shows it to him. He says he looks at it from north to south, from east to west, sees the whole thing from far away, and then he dies. And if you're like me, again, you, you go, man, this is like the most unsatisfying ending to a story that I could imagine. This guy gets saved by God in the ark in the Nile. He does all of these incredible things. He becomes increasingly faithful to the point that he is the guy who stretches his hand out over the Red Sea and, and the Israelites sing that God did that. This guy is incredible. And it ends with him dying outside of the land that God promised to bring the Israelites to. And some of you, depending on your personality, this will cause a, a question to kind of bubble up, which is, so... Moses, for all of his goodness, doesn't enter into the promised land. And we, as Christians, have been saved by grace, and we await a greater promised land. The New Testament describes it as new creation, that God is going to remake heaven and earth to dwell there with us, where there will be no pain and tears and mourning, and God will be immediately present as if the whole of creation was the holy of holies. This better, greater promised land. Some of you might go, if Moses, who is so much better than me, doesn't get into the promised land that's just a shadow of the promised land I'm waiting for, how can I expect to get into the promised land? How on earth can I, so much lesser than Moses, get into a promised land greater than the one that he was barred from? I mean, like, I don't know about you guys, but I've never had, uh, like, a prayer time where afterwards my face is glowing so much that my friends and family are afraid of me. Like, I've never experienced something like that. I've also never, like, had my pastoral authority challenged and seen, like, fire come down from heaven and consume the people who are challenging me. But just to be clear, just because that hasn't happened yet doesn't mean that anybody should get any ideas around here. 
if Moses can't get into the promised land and you and I were no Moses, how can we expect to get in? I'll tell you how you get in. The same exact way that Moses did. More than a thousand years after the death of Moses, Mark records this story. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Where are they right now? They're in Israel. They're on a tall mountain in the promised land. And who's there with him? Elijah and Moses. Moses is standing with his two feet in the promised land a thousand years after his death, more than that. And it's not because God like goes, you know what? I've had a thousand years to think about it and it wasn't actually that bad. Like I overreacted at Marabah. It was just so many times with the water and now I'm like, I'm over it, it's cool. You can, that's not how it is. God's not relaxing the requirements of his holiness and he's not reevaluating his decision. He didn't make a wrong decision that needs to be corrected. Moses doesn't get into the promised land because what he did wasn't actually that bad. Moses gets into the promised land the same way you and I do, carried there by the Messiah, carried there by the true Moses. Jesus brings Moses to the promised land and that's the same way it works for you and I. And here's why, by the way. Here's why Jesus brings Moses to the promised land. And a cloud overshadowed them. Does this sound familiar to anybody from this series? They're on a tall mountain and a cloud comes down and a voice is going to speak from it. And a voice came out of that cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. Jesus is standing on the top of a mountain with Moses and Elijah. Why Moses and Elijah? Moses represents to the Jewish people the law. Remember, like I said earlier, you want to quote the law, you just say Moses said. You don't say, you know, Leviticus 20, 20 verse whatever. Like you don't have to do, you say Moses said, and that's the law. He stands in as the kind of definitive self-revelation of God from that time of history. He's as, as good as it gets for God's revelation and representation. Elijah represents the prophets, the people who come and speak truth to Israel and to Israel's kings, the people who come and, and give God's complaints against the people of Israel over and over and over again. Elijah represents the entire prophetic line that comes after him. So Moses and Elijah stand in for the two definitive streams of God's self-revelation to his people. So Jesus is standing on the mountain with the law and the prophets, and God says, this one, listen to him. And if you've been following the story, you remember all the way back in Deuteronomy, chapter 18, when Moses said, God will raise up from among you a prophet like me and you shall what? Listen to him. Jesus is the prophet like Moses. Except God here on this mountain declares that Jesus is better, greater than Moses. Because in the law and the prophets stand by them, you listen to him. Moses gets carried by Jesus into the promised land to bear witness to Jesus' superiority, to Jesus' transcending of both law and prophets as the ultimate 
self-revelation of God for all of humanity. Look at how the author of Hebrews talks about it later. He says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. Moses is a beautiful house built by God, but who built it? Jesus. Jesus is God. And he's more glorious than Moses to the same level that the architect is more glorious than the house that he builds. Moses can't take care of your sins. He's got his own to deal with. Jesus can. So, as we conclude this series, I want to invite you guys to look back at everything we've seen and consider the fact that every beautiful moment in this story, every good thing about Moses, every good thing about this story we've told, all of it is pointing forward, forward, forward to Jesus, the true Moses, the Moses who's going to come and do all of the things that Moses was a foreshadowing of. And not just Moses, but every other beautiful detail of the story. Jesus is the ark that protects and defends those who should die. Jesus is more than the burning bush, a revelation of God to humanity. Jesus is the one who's sent back to rescue the slaves, to rescue those who are in bondage. Jesus is the one who the New Testament repeatedly says defeats the gods and powers and principalities that have held humanity in slavery for all of this time. Jesus is the Passover lamb who dies on behalf of those who ought to die. He's the firstborn son who isn't spared so that our firstborn sons might be spared. Jesus is the one who leads the people out of slavery. Jesus is the voice that calms raging seas. We see that over and over again in the New Testament. Jesus is the one who fulfills the entirety of the law. It is Jesus who is the rock that when struck pours forth living water for all eternity for humanity to drink from. Jesus is the true Moses and he's the only one who can get you and me to the promised land. See, when you and I who are in Christ, who are trusting in Jesus for salvation, when we put our faith in him, our guarantee that we will be in that new, good, beautiful creation comes from the fact that Jesus has done the work for us. You can do worse than Moses, as many of us, most of us have, and you won't be barred from that promised land because you're gonna be carried there by the Messiah, by the Son of God, the same way that Moses was. So the ushers are gonna pass out communion, as we do every week, and it's an opportunity for us to consider the cost of that salvation, the cost of that delivery into the promised land. Because you and I, we know when we're honest with ourselves, we're more like Israel than we want to admit. We're the grumblers, we're the complainers, we're the ones who even when we're in slavery, we worship the gods of the people, of the beings that have enslaved us. We're, we're like Israel. And Jesus, isn't God saying, again, like with Moses, not, it's not like, I, I'm relaxing my holiness, no big deal, free pass, it's all good. No, someone's going to take care of that. Someone's got to bring you. Someone's got to pay the penalty that you and I have accrued because we have sinned against God and sinned against our neighbor. And so Jesus 
comes as the true and better Moses to rescue us. And that's what these elements symbolize that we take every week because we want to, as Christians, remember the broken body of Jesus and the spilled blood of Jesus, to remember the slain Passover lamb, the firstborn son who was not spared. And so, closing the series out, know that the exodus, if you're a Christian, is your story. You were in slavery, slavery to Satan, sin, and death. But God sent the true Moses, his son Jesus, to come defeat evil and rescue his people and deliver them once and for all to the promised land that we wait for in the future. So we remember our Passover, our Passover lamb, our deliverance from sin, our rescue from death together. I invite you guys to stand as we take this. Oop. Thanks. <laughs> On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took bread. We talked about this a few weeks ago. He was supposed to say, because he was the officiator of the Passover, he was supposed to say, this is the bread of our affliction. Our father suffered in Egypt. Instead, he said, this is my body broken for you. As if to say, this is my affliction. I'll carry it. And we no longer look to blood smeared on a doorpost, but smeared on a cross permanently, a once-for-all sacrifice so that we can share in the victory of Jesus. He lives the life that we ought to live and could never live, satisfies requirements that we could never satisfy, and dies the death that we deserve to die, only to raise from the dead three days later because he defeats death on our behalf. And if you entrust yourself to him, you walk with him in freedom from death, into that future promised land. And so he took the cup and he said, this is my blood for a new covenant. That's the covenant we're under because of the work of Jesus. I'm gonna pray. Um, Before I do that, I'd like to invite our prayer counselors to come forward every week. We have people up here who would love to pray for you. And so if that's not a story that you identify with yet, if you don't recognize and feel and and understand that that Jesus has done everything required of you on your behalf. If you want to step into that story, if you want to go from God's enemy to his son to his daughter, come talk to us today. And for those of you who know that, who've been walking this journey, who that exodus is long ago in your rearview mirror, take heart, know that Jesus has overcome the world and that we await a new and better promised land that he has held for us. Let's pray. Father, I was a slave to sin and death. I believe that. And your son rescued me. And it can get as complicated as we want it to get, all the details, but that is the simple truth, Lord, that I was a slave and your son rescued me at great cost. Thank you for that expensive, infinitely expensive act of love that we have a faithful and true Moses, a rescuer. Lord, I pray that every person in this room would see what you have done on our behalf and that wherever we're at, we would take a step closer to you, a step further into that story. Recognize that you are still in the business of rescuing the slave. We love you. We thank you for your son. Help us to live more and more like him with every passing day. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you and have a great day.